take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17, please. John chapter 17, and if you have not been with us uh, in our Sunday morning services at 11, uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And we are in chapter 17, and just a little refresher about chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a record of Jesus' prayer. Some people call it the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. These were uh, words recorded that Jesus prayed to His Father in heaven. This chapter comes on the heels of all that Jesus had been doing from chapter 13 to chapter 16 in teaching and preparing His disciples for what was about to happen, that Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and just, uh, just hours away uh, in the garden, He's going to be arrested, He's going to be tried, in a, a falsely accused in a kangaroo court, he's going to be crucified just hours away. And so chapters 13 through 16 is Jesus taking time to teach and train and prepare his disciples for the fact that he's not going to be here anymore. And you get to chapter 17, and it's at the end of all of that teaching, just before they get into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays this prayer, and He prays it out loud for the benefit of His disciples. And we said that chapter 17 would break into three different sections. In verses 1 through 5, which we were in the last couple of weeks, Jesus prays for Himself. And we focused on the first part of this powerful prayer, and we looked at several different prayer principles uh, as we read through verses 1 through 5. And And we're not going to take the time to break all of those down again, but I'll just remind you of what we talked about. We considered Jesus' prayer posture. The Bible says in verse 1 that He lifted His eyes. He looked up. And we talked about we have a relationship with God ourselves because of Jesus Christ. And we stand righteous or declared righteous before God. God looks at us. He sees the righteousness of His Son. We talked about how Jesus called out to God by name. He calls Him Father And we can have a relationship with God the Father ourselves because of Jesus Christ. We talked about how Jesus aligned Himself with God's timetable. He said, the hour has come. It was time. And God has a schedule. God has a timetable for His will to be done. And the the challenge is for us to put ourselves and get ourselves on God's timetable, not our own. And we talked about how Jesus sought after the glory of God. He said in verse 1, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ, or focus of Jesus Christ, was to glorify God the Father. And we talked about how Jesus defined eternal life for us. And eternal life is knowing God intimately, knowing God personally. And we talked about how Jesus finished the work that God His Father had given Him to do, and then ultimately prays for the restored glory He had with the Lord, with God, before He became a man. And the main takeaway for all of that was this, that Jesus Christ lived a glory of God-driven life. The entire purpose of His life was to glorify God. And ultimately, that is our purpose for existing as well. Your purpose for existing is not to heap to yourself treasures. Your purpose for existing is not to 
enjoy your life, as it were, by trying to bring entertainments and goods and things into my life that, quote, make me happy. That's not why we exist. The chief purpose of man is to bring glory to God. That ought to be the driving force of your life. Lord, how do I give glory to you? How do you receive glory out of my life? Most people are driven by what pleaseth me. That's what most people are driven by. Their day, their schedule, their life is centered around what can I do for myself to enhance my life? When in reality, God gives us life and gives us air to breathe. And He's gracious and He's merciful to us on so many levels. And He does that. He gives us life so that we may bring glory to Him. So, that was the takeaway from all of those, that we are to do the same as Jesus Christ. The second section, which we're going to consider today, is verses 6-19. through 19. So I want us to read these verses here. And we're going to see in this section that Jesus prays for His disciples. This is the second breakdown of this passage. He prayed for Himself, and He prays for His disciples. Look in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou gavest Me out of the world. Thine they were, and Thou gavest them Me, and they have kept Thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever Thou hast given Me are of Thee. For I have given unto them the words which Thou gavest Me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from Thee, and they have believed that Thou didst send Me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given me, for they are Thine. And all mine are Thine, and Thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to Thee. Holy Father, keep keep through Thine own name those whom Thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Today, in this section, we're going to consider two things. As Jesus prays for his disciples, we're going to see why Jesus prays, number one. And we're going to work our way fairly quickly through that part. But then secondly, we're going to see what it is that Jesus prays for, for His disciples. So why Jesus prays and what Jesus prays. And these verses will shed some light for us on the heart of Jesus Christ towards His disciples. And we'll make some applications for us as well along the way, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for Your blessing. And Father, we do ask for Your Spirit to guide us and to give us understanding of your word. And and Lord, I do pray that you'd help me, Lord, to preach today, to expound on the word of God, the truth that you have for us. And Lord, I do pray for each and every one in this room as well, 
that we would be intentional about the Word of God. Lord, what it is, what is it that you have for us today? And every heart would consider that thought. Lord, what do you want for me today from your Word? What do you want me to know? And Lord, what do you want me to do? And Lord, I pray that you would bless us today with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Why does Jesus pray? Well, there are several things, and like I said, we're going to work our way fairly quickly through this section because I want to get to what it is that Jesus actually prays for, for His disciples, and that'll be the main thrust of the message this morning. But the first thing I want to draw your attention to in regards to why Jesus prays is because they know the Father. In verse 6, look at that again, verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Jesus says here, I have manifested thy name to these men that you gave me. The word manifested here, it literally means to render apparent or to make known. In other words, Jesus says, I've made known you to them. They understand you and know you because of me. The Bible says in John 1, in verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Jesus, His his purpose, His mission was to make known God the Father to mankind. Before Jesus came, it was impossible to fully comprehend, I'm going to put this in quotes, what God looks like. Now, there was some understanding of who God was, but to understand what God looks like, or what I mean by that, His person, His character, the holiness of God, before Jesus came, it was impossible to fully comprehend those things because of this, because of the holiness of God and the sin of mankind, man could not comprehend and know, truly understand God intimately. But because of Jesus Christ, God the Father is both accessible and knowable through the sacrifice of His Son. Now, that's not to say that people in the Old Testament didn't know God. What I'm saying is, and according to the Word of God, is that Jesus Christ is the express image of God the Father. We understand Him and know Him uh, and comprehend Him because of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, and here it is, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the express image of the person of God. John 14 and verse 9, when the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it sufficeth us. Jesus said this, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What is it that we can know? 
about God's character? What is it that we can know more fully and comprehend about the person and the nature of God because of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we can know the nearness of God to man, and conversely, man's nearness to God because of Jesus Christ. The relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ helps us to understand and know the relationship and the nearness that we can have to God the Father. We understand the holiness of God more clearly because of Jesus Christ. Now, the holiness of God was dimly understood and vaguely believed before Jesus' coming, but it was never quite adequately comprehended until the life of Jesus Christ. The graciousness of God is understood because of Jesus Christ. The graciousness of God is referred to in Psalm 103, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. But the nature of God the Father, as my Father, is imperfectly realized until Jesus Christ taught men to say, Our Father, that I can have a relationship with God the Father too. That He's yours. And oh, the graciousness of God that sinful men could enter into a relationship with a holy God. The helpfulness of God is another thing that's understood. Listen, understand this. No one who watched Jesus' life, who watched Him heal the sick, or, 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 or heal the lame, or cause the blind to see, or raise the dead, or pardon the guilty, no one who watched that and believed that Jesus Christ came from God could ever say that God is not that kind of a God. He's one who cares about your needs. Raising the dead, causing the blind to see, healing the lame. God is helpful, and He's gracious, and He's kind. We understand more fully the nature and the character of God because of Jesus Christ. And He says, I've manifested, I've made apparent, I've made known your name to those that you gave me. Jesus has declared Him. He finished that work of revealing the name of God or the character of God to men. Now look at the second part of verse 6, because here's another thought. The Bible says here, Thine they were, and Thou gavest them me, and they have kept Thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever Thou hast given me are of Thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. The second thing here is that they accepted and believed and obeyed God's word. He, Jesus says here that I've made it known unto them, and they've received it, and they've kept it. Now, when I, when I look at this, what, I, what comes to my mind here is how gracious Jesus is in describing His disciples. What do, we, what do we think of? What do we know of the disciples mostly? Sure, they were followers of Jesus Christ, but we, we, we tend to think about how Peter failed, how Peter denied the Lord. We tend to think about how dull the disciples were at times where Jesus is trying to teach them, and they just don't quite get it. 
We tend to think of the fact that all of them scattered when Jesus was arrested. We tend to think of the fact that they were so little in faith. They watched Jesus work miracle after miracle, and yet they still were so little in their faith. Those are the kinds of things that we often think of when we think of the disciples. But how does Jesus describe them? Look at the verse. He says in, the, in verse 6, Thine they were, thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. In verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they received them. This is how Jesus describes the disciples to God the Father. He's very gracious. I think they understood and they knew that they had failed the Lord so many times. But Jesus doesn't focus on their faithlessness. He doesn't focus on their failures. He actually focuses on their faithfulness. They've obeyed the word that you gave me. I gave them the words you gave me. They received them. You know what that means? It means it it holds the meaning of they've gotten hold of it. In other words, they've bought in to what I'm teaching. It's in their heart. They believed this. And that makes me smile just a little bit because the disciples were pretty dull most of the time. And yet Jesus is gracious with how he describes them to his Father. You know what? He could have pointed out their failures. He could have pointed out their faithlessness. But that's not what he did. He celebrated their success. He says they've gotten hold of this. They've believed and received the words that you gave me and I gave to them. You know what? Let me just make an application. Praise the Lord that He's the same way with us. That He doesn't focus on your failures. That His love for you is not based on your performance to Him. You know what? I I also think this is a really good parenting tip, by the way. Let me just make a quick application and a side note. Jesus was spotlighting their potential. He wanted his disciples looking forward. He wanted his disciples encouraged, not defeated. He didn't tell the disciples, basically, you failed me so many times that you're basically worthless and I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Will you ever get this? Well, I think sometimes parents act that way towards their children. I mean, I believe it's true that we can really traumatize our kids and make them feel worthless and of no value if we're not careful. A child's view of God is so often comes from the way that they're raised and the way that their own father is. In other words, sometimes, and I wonder how many people feel this way, that God is harsh, that God is mean, that I can never really please Him, that I fear Him, but it's not a proper fear of Him because I'm just waiting for God to bring the hammer down every time I fail, which is basically all the time, leaving me feeling worthless and of no value to Him. How do you feel about God, the kind of God that He is? Oh, I fear God. I have a fear of God, but it's not the proper kind of fear because I'm just cowering, waiting for God to bring the hammer down. Basically, I can't ever be good enough and I can't please Him because I fail. Where do we get that idea? It's a good parenting tip, isn't it? Hey, 
We, got, we, need, we should be careful. And we should follow after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He didn't treat them as failures. He encouraged them. He didn't want them defeated. And He told His Father, Hey, I gave them the words that you gave me. They've received it. It's in their heart. They believe it. I think that's encouraging. Look at the second part of verse 8, where Jesus says, And have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Another reason why Jesus prayed here was because they believed that Jesus was sent by the Father. The disciples doubted sometimes. They wavered. They even all bailed out on Jesus when things got rough. But in their heart, they believed that He was the Christ. In John chapter 6 and verse 69, Peter said this, We, referring to all the other disciples, we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now they may not have been clear exactly what Jesus came to do, but they believed that He was the Christ. Verse 9, look at verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them, which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus prays because they belong to the Father. And Jesus thought of his disciples as gifts from the Lord, from God his Father. And then look at verse 10. And again, I wanted to move quickly through this section because I want to get to the rest of these verses. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 10. And all, are my, all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. See, Jesus prayed for his disciples here. And he's talking to his father, and he says about his disciples that I'm glorified in them. What a powerful thought. What an amazing thought that is where Jesus says, I'm glorified in them. That could literally be translated, I stand glorified in them. And it brings a thought to my mind and a question to my mind. Does Jesus receive glory through me? Does He receive glory through you? Jesus' statement about His disciples was that I am glorified in their life. Does your life bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? I want us to read verses 11 through 19 because here's where I want to spend our time. What it, exactly is it that Jesus prays for, for His disciples? And here's where we're going to make application for us as well. And I want to look at the specific requests that Jesus makes for His disciples. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, we find that Jesus wants them to be secure. Look at verse 11. He says, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I am come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled." Jesus is praying for His disciples that they would be secure. Notice the word keep. 
is used once in verse 11. And then in verse 12, you see the phrase, I kept them. You see that two times in verse 12. The word keep or kept in these verses means to guard from loss or injury. And Jesus says that he kept his followers safe. He kept them secure while he was with them in the world. But now that he's returning back to the glory of heaven, he's handing them back over to the Father for safekeeping. Now, what is he talking about and why is that something that's important? Well, here's here's why it's important. Because Jesus knew that with his departure... Satan would change his focus and turn his focus not to, from, to Jesus, but onto his disciples. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Again, this word, it means to be on guard. And it was a word that was used to describe a mother hen, how she would protect her chicks under her wings. And so I want you to get the word picture of what Jesus is praying the Father to do. To protect those that He had given Him. To be on guard and care for them. And we're reminded, we're reminded that as born-again believers... We are eternally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. 2 Timothy 1, 12, where Paul says this, he says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. I'm eternally secure in the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. But beyond that, right now in this life, friend, He's also a very present help in time of trouble. He's a present help and and a safe keeper for the saints of God. Not just physically, but also spiritually. I can't tell you really how many times... Our own evangelist, Noah George, has been against things or things come up that that are very life-threatening things. Or times in, in our own lives where there's sickness or illness that could instantly result in death. But God is there to protect. God is there to, to care for His people physically. But what about spiritually? What about the, 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 the attack that the devil would bring into your life? You remember Job. And you remember how God said, consider my servant Job. He's a man who fears God, eschews evil. And the devil said, oh, the only reason, the only reason he does that is because you have a hedge of protection around him. You're protecting him. Remember that? And Satan says, if you remove that, he'll curse you. Satan couldn't touch Job unless God allowed it. And you know what? In our own life, we're faced and we combat daily things, but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that's taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, 
but will with the temptation make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Your security is of the utmost importance to God. Jesus prays for His disciples to keep them, to guard them from loss or injury. He said, I kept them safe. And my prayer is that you would keep them safe. God is faithful, and He's a very present help in time of trouble. That's worthy of our thanks and praise. When was the last time you said, whoa, that was close. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me. Right? Look at verse 13. He says, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Not only does he want them to be secured, but he wants them to be satisfied. Notice that Jesus says here that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Because we're secure, because we're secure in our salvation, we should also experience satisfaction in Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that Jesus is not talking about having happiness. He's not talking about experiencing little bits of joy once in a while. What he's talking about and what he desires is that his disciples have a full measure of his joy. A full measure of the joy of Jesus Christ. That's a difficult thing to comprehend. The word fulfilled in verse 13, it means to make replete. And it's, it's the idea of something being completely full. It was a word that was used in the fishing world. And so the disciples would have understood exactly what Jesus is meaning because most of them were fishermen. They would have understood exactly what Jesus was meaning when he said this. And the word meant to cram a net full of fish. In other words, there was no more room, not even for one more. The net was full. It was going to break. In other words, Jesus wanted them to be crammed full, their life to be filled up with the joy of the Lord, and no room for anything else. Would you describe your life like that? <clears throat> now, before we think that being joyful means that we just have to plaster a smile on our face all day long, Jesus defines for us what it is that actually brings real joy. Go to John 15, just a couple pages back, and look in John chapter 15 and verse 10. John 15, 10, Jesus says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. What is it that Jesus says in context here that brings fullness of joy into the life of a believer? He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, 
You're going to abide in my love and I, as I have kept my Father's commandments. And these things have I spoken unto you that your joy might remain and your joy would be full. I think, in other words, what we find here is that obedience to Christ and living a life that is in submission to the Lord and obedience to the Lord is really the thing that ultimately brings joy to the soul. It's the opposite of what we might think. And it's the opposite of what many try to do. What do many try to do? Well, they try to live life for themselves. They're living the dream. We're living the dream, right? I went to school and I got a degree and I went and got a job and I'm making good money and I'm setting money aside and we go on vacations and I've got all these things and I'm just living the dream, man. I'm happy. Yeah, tell that to Tom Brady right now. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier. A man who has more money than you could possibly imagine. A man who's at the height of fame, the pinnacle of success in this life. And his personal life is a wreck. He's getting divorced. He's all in all the news with all the scandal and all the things. Why? Why? And we were, we were talking about like, what, why, why is that a thing? Well, you know what? People reach fame, they reach success, they, they live the dream, and they're still not happy. They're still not joyful. And they got all these other things going on. They're looking for something. And it gets them into a bunch of trouble. And a big, giant mess. That's what most people do. And sadly, a lot of Christians do the same thing. Oh, we're followers of Christ, but we're not really why don't I experience joy in my life? Why is there room? Jesus says, I want you to be crammed full of my joy. No more room for anything else. Why am I not experiencing joy? Well, are you really being obedient to Christ and His Word? We don't manufacture joy in our life. Jesus says that His joy, it's His joy. And the Word of God tells us that it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We don't manufacture joy on our own. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's our job to abide in Christ, to abide in the vine, to abide in Him, and allow the full measure of His joy then to flow into our life. If you're not joyful and you got all kinds of room for other stuff, <laughs> cranky, crabby, I'm a little bit miserable, not satisfied, are you really in obedience to Christ and His Word? Jesus prays for His disciples. He wants them to be secure. Keep them. He wants them to experience satisfaction through a relationship with Him, that they would have the fullness of His joy. There's a third request in verses 14 through 16 of John chapter 17. Look at verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou, that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
Jesus also wants his disciples here to be separated. Notice how he says, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them from the evil while they're here. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus states they're not of this world. In other words, I want them to be separated. He doesn't want to take them out of the world. That's a descriptive phrase. The word means to sail away or to sail off. But instead, he says, he's committed to protecting them from the evil of it. You've heard the phrase, we are in the world as saints, but we are not of the world as saints. And one commentator said this, and I found it very interesting. He said, this reminds us that this prayer of Jesus teaches us what we should pray for. The spiritual dimensions of this prayer are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even the games that we would play. We spend more time praying for those things than we do the danger of the evil in this world. Materialists at heart, we often discern only very, very dimly the spiritual struggle at play. Certainly churches will not produce many spiritual giants when they fail to discern their chief enemy. What does Jesus pray for? He doesn't doesn't pray for finances, and He doesn't pray for health, and He doesn't pray for projects. He prays that that they would be kept from the evil of this world, to be separated from it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is the god of this age. 1 John 5.19 adds that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 1 John 2.16 declares that the things of the world are diametrically opposed to the things of God. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The word world occurs 40 times between chapter 13 and chapter 17. In chapter 17 alone, it's used 18 times. It refers to the ethical and moral system of this world that stands in rebellion to God. Why does Jesus pray this way? To protect His disciples from the evils of this world, to be separated from it. That's what the Lord wants of you and me, but unfortunately, many Christians try to get as close to the world as they possibly can. And you know what? They don't understand how dangerous that is because James 4.4 says, if you're going to be a friend of this world, you're going to be an enemy of God. Whosoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. One pastor said this, he said, the most miserable Christians I know are the worldly ones. They're like fish trapped in a net. They're still alive, but they're bound up 
They're immobilized. They're unproductive. They're headed for destruction if they don't break free. In the same context of James 4.4, where you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God, the same context, the Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And what I'm saying is this, brethren. If we don't get serious about living separated lives, our church and others and our families are in big trouble if they aren't already. I think America has gone the way of Europe, of days gone by. If we don't focus on fortifying ourselves and our families, they're going to crumble. In days gone by, Europe was, and other countries, they were known for their faith in God. But you know what? Faith and family has become a relic of a religious past. It's just bywords. And maybe we need to do a better job ourselves. And maybe we need to do a better job of helping our kids. To make good choices. To understand the danger of the world. It's going to destroy them. I'll just be really transparent with you. I feel like one of the biggest mistakes I ever made as a parent was giving my kids access to electronics, phones, way too soon. Way too soon. Because of the influence and the things that come into their mind and their heart. It's all of the world. And to do a better job at helping them to see the danger and the destruction and the influence and make good choices that are going to encourage their life for the Lord, not destroy it. You know, you find it in video games. Nothing, nothing is safe anymore. You find it in TV, movies, radio, like music. I mean, we need, we need to do a better job asking the Lord to help us to stay separated from this world. Our security leads to satisfaction, but then to separation. And then there's a fourth request that Jesus makes for His disciples, and that's in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. In verse 19, Jesus says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus prays for their sanctification. He prays for their security, for their satisfaction, for their separation. Fourthly, for their sanctification. If there's ever been a churchy-sounding word, sanctification is it. So I want to try to unpack it a little bit, maybe bring it down to how we can understand it. The word sanctified, it means to be set apart or dedicated. And it speaks of allegiance. It, it speaks of consecration for a purpose of sacrifice. 
Now, in this sense, Jesus is set apart as a priest preparing to offer up a sacrifice, which is going to be his own body. And he says in verse 19, For their sake I sanctify myself. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But for us, the context here is so crucial to understanding what the truth is, the greater truth here. In the preceding verses, Jesus declared that His disciples were not of this world. Therefore, He's praying to the Father to sanctify them and further set them apart from this world. But the agency of this sanctification, according to verse 17, is the truth. Notice, He says, sanctify them through thy truth. But then he says that the vehicle of this sanctification is the word. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So you following that? So what is the practical outworking of that principle? The practical outworking is this. It is God's word that will set us apart from the corruption of this world. And that God's word on a practical level is what produces holiness in the life of a believer. The crucial nature of God's word in day-to-day Christian living is the thing that is in view here. In other words, sanctification happens through the word of God. The only way to live set apart is to be immersed in the word of God. So, in other words, it's this. Go ahead, Doug. Answer it. We'll wait. (laughs) If it's important, go ahead. I mean, we'll, we'll let you deal with it. The truth is this. Reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, and then living the Word of God is not optional. It is absolutely crucial. Jesus says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. To be set apart from this world for the purpose of God, it requires the word of God being lived out in your life. How are your times in the word of God with the Lord? Are they a priority in your life? Or do you go day after day after day? Don't really ever engage. We'll pick it up on Wednesday. We'll pick it up on Sunday when we got to go to church. But otherwise, the Word of God isn't really impactful in my life. Someone once said, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Jesus' heart was that His disciples be set apart. And He says, Lord, sanctify them. And then we find in verse 18 that he wanted them to saturate the world. Look at verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now listen carefully. We're to be sanctified by the word of God so that we can in turn saturate the world with the word of God. Sanctification is always with a purpose, always with a mission. 
How was Jesus sent into the world? He was sent into the world with love, number one, but he was sent into the world with a mission, his purpose. He was always on mission. That's the life of Jesus. Let me give you a a story. During the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the British government ran out of silver to make coins. Cromwell responded to the need by sending his men across the nation to see if they could uncover more of the precious metal. His men returned shortly without much to speak of, reporting that the only silver they could find was in the statues of the saints that were on display in the multitude of cathedrals around England. Cromwell's response was this, Good! Then we'll melt down the saints and we'll put them back into circulation. Let me make an application. We, as saints of God, are not to be cloistered in churches, but instead we're to be out in circulation in the world, saturating the world with the truth of God. That's why Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. Salt doesn't do much good if it's still sitting in a salt shaker. We are... According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we're called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And as such, we're supposed to approach everything that we do as an agent of the mission of God in this world. Jesus was always on his mission. Every disciple is to carry the mission of God into his or her sphere of life. Meaning, meaning this. A factory worker is really an evangelist described as, or uh, 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 not described, but disguised as a factory worker. A teacher is an evangelist disguised as a teacher. A mother is an evangelist and also a mother. What I'm saying is this, we're always to be on mission too, in circulation in this world. Jesus said of his disciples, I was sent into the world, and I'm sending them out into the world. So let me see if I can tie all this together. Because we're secure in Christ, we can be satisfied with Christ, and should lead us to a separated life, sanctified for His purposes, so that we can saturate the world with His Word. That's the prayer of Jesus Christ for His disciples. It's an application for us as well. The question is, how will we respond? Jesus prayed for His disciples, but He's praying for you too, because there's a spiritual war that is raging. When you declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ, friend, you can't remain neutral anymore. You can't float through life. How are you going to respond When God speaks, you know, we can respond in several different ways. Christians often do. A lot of times Christians will isolate themselves. They withdraw, they hide from everything out there in the world. I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm saved, I don't want anything to do with the world. They isolate themselves. Sometimes Christians will insulate themselves. And what I mean by that is, I've got my own problems, and so... I choose to insulate myself from the problems and the pain 
of others around me who don't know Jesus Christ. You know what? I've got neighbors out there who are experiencing pain in their life. What they need is the Lord. They're experiencing all kinds of other things. But you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. I spend all my time with other Christians. And if I do talk about the lost out there, it's usually in judgment. And it's an us versus them mentality. That is not the response of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be for them like Jesus was. People can respond by imitating. And I'm afraid that's where the majority of believers in this world end up. Instead of fighting and resisting the systems of this world, people just want to fit in. But what Jesus wants is He wants us to infiltrate the world. This is the heart of Jesus Christ. To be secure, to be satisfied, to be separated, to be sanctified, so that we saturate the world with the Word of God. We're called to live on Jesus' mission. Is that how you live your life? On mission? On the purpose of Christ? Is your heart to be sanctified, to be set apart? Is your heart to be obedient to the commands of Christ? Jesus prayed for His disciples. He was leaving. He was preparing them. And in this prayer, we find that He was giving a pattern of how He wanted them to live. It's the same for you and me, friend. How will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You'd use Your Word in our life. And we can say a bunch of flowery things. We can sound all spiritual. But what we really are is in how we live day to day. And I could stand up here and say all the right things. I could sound all spiritual and godly. Any pastor could. But in reality, what am I? I am what I live day to day. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us of that truth. And some will sit and be disinterested and some will move around and sigh and moan and be bored. But the truth of God's Word has been given today. There's an opportunity to engage with it. And Lord, I pray for the, those that are serious about serving You. And Jesus said, I don't, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my disciples. Not because He wasn't concerned for that, the world or the souls of men. His purpose was the protection and the care of His disciples. And Lord, I'm praying today for those who are serious about serving Christ, and following Christ. Lord, that You'd work in their heart today to further sanctify and set apart and 
further encourage and to protect. And Lord, that it would be the purpose of our heart to live on the mission of Jesus Christ. So we ask, Lord, that you use your word in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.